Hello from Austin, and welcome to episode 233 of the National Security Law Podcast. We're brought to you by the Strauss Center at the University of Texas. It's Monday night, February 13th, 2023. I'm Bobby Chesney. I'm Steve Vladek. I am so losing this bet. I'm, I'm, I'm screwed. I, we might as well just go out to dinner now. <laughs> we'll take the summer off. Uh, Steve, we're not alone. What is going on here? We're not alone. We, we have once again, uh, against, I don't know, maybe our better judgment, um, auctioned off guest hosting the podcast as part of the Texas Law Fellowship's uh, annual auction for sponsoring public interest internships. Um, and somehow uh, two of our current and former students agreed to join us. So hello, hello, current slash former students. Sam and Alex, welcome to the show. Uh, let's get you guys introducing yourselves. Uh, Sam, why don't you go first? Sure. And thank y'all. This is an awesome opportunity. So I'm Sam Libby. I'm a third year. At, we're both three L's at um, UT Law. Um, oh, a bit about me. I, Sam, Sam, say that again. It froze right as you were introducing yourself. I assume that gets cut. Okay. Well, we'll you're assuming I mean, a lot. <laughs> I mean, that, that depends on, on you know how nice you are to us in the rest of the episode. Okay. This is an <laughs> podcast. Fair enough. Um, I'm Sam Libby. I'm a 3L at UT Law. Um, a bit about me. I worked at a consulting firm for a couple of years in New York and Boston um, before law school. Um, I'm originally from Dallas. I, um, I did, in the national security law front, kind of, um, I did an internship at the White House National Economic Council in college and I, uh, my 1L year, I interned at um, the Eastern District of New York Criminal Division. Um, so super interested in this stuff. Very excited to be on here. And currently in the world's greatest federal courts class. Of course. No complaints whatsoever until the grades get posted. <laughs> <Exactly>. <laughs> and Alex, how about you? Um, hi, everyone. I'm, I'm Alex Rigby. Um, I'm also 3L like Sam. Uh, thank you guys for being here. Um, I grew up uh, across an ocean uh, in, in Liverpool in the UK, but uh, my folks have, and I have lived in Delaware for most of my life before coming to UT for law school. And uh, that's where I'll be heading after law school to work at the Chancery Court as a clerk. Um, but between uh, undergrad and law school, I worked for a security um, artificial intelligence company in London uh, called Data Miner where I was sort of engaged in real-time security reporting. Um, really cool company. Um, and that sort of set a few interests of mine um, in data and privacy. And I've, I've carried that through with some research in law school. So thank you guys for having me on. I've, 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 never, I've never asked you are, you, are you Liverpool or are you Everton? I'm Everton. So I'm, unfortunately, we lost the 2-0 today to Liverpool. And it's been the plight of my existence. But, you know, it, it's fifth generation in my family. My well, great-great-granddad was there for the first game in 1878. So I don't really have much of a say in the matter. <laughs> there's, um, there's actually, there is a pub in Austin that is a Liverpool uh, uh, pub. And it's right by where I often go to Orange Theory. It's right by where um, the Kids Museum is. And so there, there's, there's often quite a raucous crowd, you know, Wearing all those terrible red colors, but um, yeah. my favorite Liverpool Everton fact—I think this is a fact—is that they are the two closest professional, like top-flight professional sports teams to each other in any league in the world. Yeah, it's le less than less than a mile across Stanley Park between Goodison Park and Anfield. But the the real sad irony of it is that um, Everton actually first played at Anfield 
Um, that was our first stadium. We built the ground and then we refused to pay the rent. And so we went and built a new stadium. And because we didn't pay the rent, in came Liverpool. We've won 25 to 40 more titles than we have and beat us every year. So I guess that if there's a law school story, it's that, well, pay your debts. <laughs> that, that, that that has lots of Amherst Williams undertones to it as well. Yeah. But I can say that for another time. Awesome. You know, uh, Alex, your your observation about technology and data it, it kind of put me in mind of Chat GPT, and I don't think we've uh, talked enough on the show about Chat GPT. So, in, in honor of that, I decided to ask Chat GPT to write an introduction for the National Security Law Podcast. Are you guys ready for that? Here it is. I thought about starting with this, and I thought, no, they're gonna they're gonna think um, that I wrote this. Judge for yourself whether it be an improvement. Welcome to the National Security Law Podcast, where we delve into the complex world of national security law and its impact on our daily lives. Each episode, our team of experts will tackle the most pressing issues at the intersection of law, politics, and national security, from cybersecurity to surveillance. From the fight against terrorism to the protection of civil liberties, we'll bring you the latest analysis, insights, and debates. Join us on this journey as we explore the legal framework that shapes the way our government secures our nation and balances the need for safety with the preservation of our freedoms. So I, I feel I, I feel like maybe the genericness of our title um, did not help Chat ChatGPT figure out which podcast it was writing an introduction for, like. <laughs> That, that seems like an introduction to a generic National Security Law podcast, not an introduction to the National Security uh, Law podcast. It fails to be distinct enough. It, it actually makes us sound way, okay, way more sophisticated. Part, yeah, and it says our team of experts. Clearly, ChatGPT is not <laughs> as fully self-aware as it ought to be. Uh, there is definitely no team of experts involved in this deal. And this whole thing just makes us sound much more serious. And, uh, well, uh, yeah, I think that's it. It sounds makes us sound too serious. But not bad on the whole. This is almost as good as the faculty dinner speech I had it right for for me last December, which I thought that one went over pretty well. <laughs> oh man, I have um, more of these, but I'll save them for later. Um, meanwhile, I think I think uh, we we have to we have to improve Sam's internet connection because Sam seems to be, or or he's just already sick of us and he's he's bouncing off the. I see him there. He's back. He's back. Nice. Oh, come on, Sam. Uh, this this is bringing back the memories. I feel like I'm sitting here teaching con law, and you know, it, I I will always remember because you were in New York at the time, and I could tell from the view through your window. I could I could tell what apartment building in New York you lived in. <laughs> Absolutely, absolutely. And now you're now you're going to my old firm, so the, the circle is complete. Uh, you you are now the, the what's, master. What, what's the line when Harry met Sally? It's the smallest city of seven million people you ever heard of. There is something. There's something to that. Absolutely. Oh yes, that was the that was the hybrid teaching teaching approach. I, that was that was the worst of all worlds. I agree with that. I think that uh, seminars worked pretty well for fully online. Um, in fact, you could argue that seminars almost worked a little bit better because you had direct eye contact with everybody from the same distance, as it were, and you could see everyone at one time if you had a reasonable size seminar. 
uh, but teaching a regular, uh, you know, one out class in hybrid format, no thanks. That was no fun and not a great experience compared to the in-person real thing. Um, well, let's hope it's a long time before we need to revisit this. And I was saying to Sam earlier when I saw that T-shirt, uh, that'll be a heck of a keepsake. Hopefully 20 years from now, you're pulling that out of the drawer and trying to explain to some kids what Zoom was. Hopefully we don't still know. I, I'm more worried about in 20 years, Sam having to explain to his kids what law is. <laughs> who, who, who were these lawyers you used to be before? A, law law school? The, what? Before the balloons and the aliens took over? Guys, we got to go back to balloon law. And no, I think no, we no. need to amend balloon law to include UFO law as well. They're not UFOs. It's just that we've adjusted the sensitivity of our various radar systems. Oh, bah humbug. I'm just saying. <laughs> um, just because they're shown up on radar doesn't mean they're identified flying objects. Steve. <laughs> I, I, saw, I saw that one of them was a, it was, was an octagon with strings coming down from it. Ooh. And I, I don't, I can't even really envision what that looks like, other than like a broken pinata. Um, was it some kind of ultimate fighting type situation, like Rihanna's halftime show with ultimate fighting octagon up in the sky, and then we come along and blow it out of the sky and ruin the whole thing? <sighs> I was trying to figure out how we we're going to work in the halftime show into the into the podcast, but Bobby, Bobby once again has beaten us all to the punch. Well, that should definitely play a role in our frivolity, and maybe. Maybe some Mandalorian uh, trailer review as well, and whatever else you guys can come out with. But I do think we need to review and discuss. Have you Super watched? Bowl. Have you watched The Last of Us yet? Uh, no. Okay. All right. So not. So we're not going there yet. But I'm going to. I've got a flight next week. I'll I'll start watching it. Um, I'm not sure I would watch that on a flight, but you know, whatever. Oh, <laughs> each his own. Right. Um, you may have to tell me a little bit. About I mean, maybe if you're one of those like you know closed door suites on like Emirates. That, I, I can assure you that will not be the situation on my flight. No, if it's Bobby, you're, if it's Bobby, you'll be on Southwest and you'll be like C27 for your boarding number. Exactly. <laughs> I've got to figure out how at least to get up into the high B range, but um, have not figured that out yet. Uh, so we've got some balloon and UFO coverage. We are going to touch base with some of the cases. I think we mentioned last week uh, this one material support case. Actually, it's worth going into a little more detail explaining how this is a little different than norms. And there's also a National Security Division update on the sort of what you might say is the domestic terrorism side of the coin. There have been a lot of attacks, some, some shootings of the equipment at energy production facilities. And there's been an arrest made uh, involving a pair of people who are involved in this sort of thing. So we'll, we'll take note of that. Uh, perhaps we could check in on TikTok. TikTok itself has been uh, on a bit of a PR burst in the United States, trying to get people excited about their plan for cutting a deal that would enable them to complete their CFIUS review successfully. So we'll, we'll touch base with that. And then, uh, Steve, any Supreme Court uh, shenanigans we need to check in on? He's shaking his head, folks. He's shaking his head. So I guess we'll, it's a no. It's a no from Steve. I mean, you know, the, I mean, we can talk about, I mean, the, if the most interesting thing that's happened in the Supreme Court in the last week is that two retired justices went to the State of the Union for the first time since 1997, I think that tells, I mean, it's midway, it's the court's midwinter recess. The, things will pick up in a hurry yeah. next week. Did um, you think, okay, can we comment on that a little bit? So there seem to be a lot of people very interested in the fact that two retired justices went. 
I have a hard time finding that exciting. Did you think, am I missing something? No. It's <laughs> a really slow news week when that's what the court coverage is all about. I mean, maybe it's good to know that Briar and Kennedy are still alive, I guess. Yeah. Um, still here. Still here. Um, although there are two other retired justices who are very much, you know, still with us, but not making public appearances. You know, Alex, when it's, you know, prime minister's questions or anything else, I don't know how much you, you follow this, but do you find that uh, foreign affairs and national security topics tend to come up in the prime minister's discourse more frequently than you see in U.S. politics? Have you ever noticed any difference there? I think it depends on the quality of the prime minister. Um, <laughs> but, um, Thanks for some follow-up questions, doesn't yeah, it? Yeah, we've, we've, we've had a few poor ones, but I mean, I think, um, you know, of the last, in the last, 10 years, there's been this overhanging national security question of Brexit and the European Union that, that has bled into virtually every element of, of British politics. And you know, even with the, the last, uh, how many Tory prime ministers is it now? Is it four? Is it five? But at least the last three. I mean, Ukraine has been a, a, a huge drum for them to beat, um, as, the, as the, the picture at home is pretty gloomy. Um, so, yeah, it, I, I think the way it's discussed is, is is different, but I think there is a fair amount of deference given to number 10 on it in a way that there isn't for most of the other subjects. And even with all the turnover, you've kind of had the year of the four emperors going there. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Make 1936 great again. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, I, I was I was teasing when we got on that I, it took me a minute to remember today that Rishi Sunak is the prime minister. <laughs> but it is. The it times is we live in. Um, speaking of Commonwealth prime ministers, should we talk about Justin Trudeau and apparently his his apparently not well-known authority to order the U.S. Air Force to blow stuff up? <laughs> yeah. Yeah, so it was a little uh, mini, uh, a, a series of explosions, some kinetic and then some social media. So uh, <laughs> it was reported that PM Trudeau, uh, it was described as the PM giving the order uh, for the F-22 to take out one of these several objects have been shot out of the sky. I mean, can we just say it's like it's like a skeet shoot now. We've gone from like we just watch them fly by to just like pull. There's, a, there's it's, it's, it is a bad time to be an atmospheric weather researcher. There's meteorologists all over North America You're like son of a. <laughs> there goes the, the signal. I think that was our ship. Um, okay, so an F-22 fired a, what was it, an, an AIM and took out an object. And the media report was, well, that that uh, order to fire was given by the PM. So how exactly does that happen? Well, um, here's a statement from NORAD that I think is, is pretty critical to understanding the flow of decision-making. And the quote from Brigadier General Pat Ryder, who's Pentagon press secretary, is following a call between the Prime Minister of Canada and the President of the United States, President Biden authorized U.S. fighter aircraft assigned to, and I'm just shortening here, NORAD, to work with Canada to take down a high altitude airborne object over northern Canada today. Um, on, on that model, it's not so much that uh, Trudeau can just pick up the phone and say, all right, I, dial me up some F-22s. I've got some... Uh, I've got some assignments for them, but rather that the American forces were, were put at the disposal of the PM by by deliberate choice by the commander in chief. Um, does that is that is it as simple as that, y'all? Any any other insights about this? 
So, I, I mean, I guess if we really wanted to, you know, be nerdy, right, there's some interesting use at Bellum questions in a context in which the thing being shot down was actually maybe sovereign property of another country um, about, for example, whether both. So, so imagine a world where the thing that was shot down was not a weather balloon, but was actually like a manned aircraft, um, right? Would that be a hostile act by both the Canadian and United States governments at that point, or would it only be a hostile act by Canada given the command structure? Can I reframe it as asking if it's an armed attack? Yes. And then and if I would, so by whom? I, I would say it's joint if it was both the PM and the president making the decision. However, the critical thing to say is if it's over their own territory, they have every right to do it. Oh, sure. Yeah. So you don't get to the is it is it an act of hostilities, et cetera, an attack in use in bellow sense? Um, I guess you could say so, but it's in no sense the initiation of an, an armed attack in the sovereign versus sovereign sense. So, so can I, you've so, already so, got so, the intrusion into. But the intrusion is just in the Canadian airspace, right? Not into the United States airspace. Yeah, but so the but President Biden's role and, and thus the American role in this would be by invitation and cooperation. No, I the agree. Canadian the question country. is just so I guess I'm just trying to figure out like the are we at that point co-belligerents, right? I mean, like, is that the, is that like how this cashes out if this were actually a thing, which by the way, it's not, I'm just, I'm just having fun. Yeah. Right. No, same here. Um, so I think, I think not because first of all, at, at the end of the day, you have, you have a question here is, is any party to the exchange of kinetic activity at all advancing a claim of actual armed conflict of armed attack, et cetera, don't think we have that. Although I guess you could say that the Chinese in the first instance made a bunch of use in bellow type noises about how it, it was did. an indiscriminate attack on. on all right. All right. So, so, so change hypothetical. I mean, so, so now we're talking like Norway, 1940, right before, right. You know, the, the not, you know, the, 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 there's a, imagine there's a fleet, there's a sort of a, um, a squadron of American fighter planes, right. That FDR has controversially temporarily lent, you know, command and control over to, to the British government. Um, are we at that point, right? Like, is the United States, if, if, if Chamberlain orders those planes, right, into combat um, with the permission of FDR, like, what is, the, what is the status of the United States as a belligerent in that conflict at that point? That's what I'm trying to get at. So on your hypothetical, these planes are, is it the equipment that's been lent? Lend and lent? the pilots. And the pilots. Right. So, um, so you have an existing international armed conflict, right? You have a state party to that conflict in the, in the form of right, Great Britain, right? And you have a non-party to the conflict, at least in April 1940, right? Um, agreeing as a matter of domestic law to lend a squadron of manned fighter planes, right, to one of the parties in the conflict. Sam and Alex, you want to take a crack at that? Well, <laughs> well, I was thinking, I keep thinking historically, I, I was thinking about the quasi-war in the Adams administration about, it wasn't quite on point, but you have <laughs> the Napoleonic... to the Adams administration. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Which, by the way, if it's for frivolity, but Wednesday we've just finished and it was phenomenal. But um, different Adams. Um, <laughs> they had, I, I mean, you have the Napoleonic Wars and you have these U.S. privateers that are quasi-affiliated with the U.S. government sort of interfering with um, shipping. I mean, it's not a, a new, like, scenario when you have a nation like that. It's, the U.S. has just been sort of on the sidelines. And um, 
I don't know, <laughs> obviously. It, it, all I'm saying is it seems like there actually is lurking at the bottom of a different version of this story an interesting question about sort of at what point um, the law of armed conflict starts to get very interested in the head of state, or I guess the head of government, pardon me, of, of one country, um, right, ordering forces that have been volunteered by the head of the head of government of another. So I think that um, what we're talking about here is a situation in your hypothetical where we've fully seconded equipment and personnel and, and in a formal sense, release them from our own chain of command and relinquish them to the chain of command of another right, right. versus temporary. Hey, something's over your territory. You can borrow our, you know, you can borrow our, our, our infrastructure for a minute. Right. And, and so here in the, in your Norway example, we've got an actual context, undisputed context of armed conflict, which is the first big distinction from our, our present circumstances. I don't think we're in a state of armed conflict with China. Um, but, but if you have that larger context of armed conflict, and then you have an ostensibly still neutral power from an international law of neutrality perspective, taking a step that includes saying, oh, by the way, we're, we're going to go ahead and loan out the seventh fleet to you, and we're just going to formally relinquish it to your command, although we have the ability to snap it back. Um, yeah, it becomes pretty hard when you're taking some level of military support to that extent where your own people are involved. Um, it's very hard to maintain the pose that you're still a neutral in that circumstance. I actually think there's some interesting questions that have been raised about the American and, and NATO role more generally in the, the Ukraine-Russia war insofar as we're providing targeting intelligence, insofar as we're providing, obviously, munitions galore, equipment galore, and the question of whether you can maintain any posture of formal neutrality. I, I'm not sure anyone really actually seems to care, right? There doesn't seem to be a lot of interest in, in the uh, various capitals involved in trying to say, oh, oh no, we're, we're completely neutral. I don't think anyone's claiming that. I think everyone's claiming, no, we're very much on the side of Ukraine. As a formal legal matter, that might open the window for the Russians to say, well, you've, you've become co-belligerents. But there's a huge gulf between making an academic version of that claim and deciding to take the claim as a matter of sovereign diplomacy. That's a line that I don't think has been crossed, although the Russians have talked about it a bunch. Um, so I think the China balloon, let alone the meteorological or other UFO balloons. And by the way, let's not rule out the alien possibility. <laughs> UFOs, my friends, I can't believe we're just not engaging that. Sam, Alex, what do you think? Um, is it just stray kites and you know, weather devices that are now showing up on the radar. As Steve said, the radar has been recalibrated to take account. Um, do you think there's a there out there? God, I hope I, not. Yeah. Well, I, 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 I hope not. But I also did say at an event last week that a war with aliens would actually, you know, make me feel something um, uh, for the human race. Which, which I don't think would be a bad thing at the end of the day. Uh, but um, yeah, I, I think it's probably just some, some strange objects that have now come, come into view. Um, but what I found you know, really interesting about it is uh, the Chinese response saying that, well, the Americans have sent a load of balloons over to us over the last few years as well. Um, so I wonder if we're just going to keep seeing more balloons floating over each country, um, uh, you know, petty balloons, balloons with messages. You just never know. The uh, 
the mylar industry is their stock is rising. <laughs> the newest, newest Bellway bandits only temporarily. I have an actual another NORAD question. Um, do, does the existence of NORAD like between the system between the U.S. and Canada sort of mutually being responsible for air defense above North America? Going back to the hypothetical, does that sort of mean that we can never be neutral in any conflict with that Canada may have over the joint airspace or vice versa? Well, I think that the NATO treaty and and the mutual defense obligations attached therein would encompass that. Mm -hmm. Uh, I'm sure the case that the NORAD agreement in some senses, uh, we guess the NORAD, I just pulled up some of the, the background on it. And it's interesting how it's described here. It, its history goes back to 1940 when uh, PM Mackenzie King and FDR uh, first started talking about mutual North American collaboration. Um, but NORAD itself goes back to 1957. It is a binational command, both countries as sovereigns represented there. Um, of course, here, insert obligatory war games discussion. Can we talk about <laughs> war games? Sam and Alex, have you guys seen war games? The old not Matthew recently. God, I'm the familiar. only winning move is not to play. Yeah. Steve, I, Steve, I assume you're fully conversant in, in war games. Oh, greetings, Professor Falcon. How about okay, a nice good. game of chess? Thank you, Joshua. Thank you. Um, Alex and Sam, as your professors, and, and now as your dean, I, th- I think part of my deaconal authority is I can give movie watching commands and uh, <laughs> absolute must. And I know many a listener is hearing me say that and saying, he's right. You know, he's wrong about most things. But he's right about you got to watch war games. Um, um, I was going to say, we should, we should also go back to the Western episode about the, the border tensions between the United States and Canada. So you've mentioned, I, I've revealed before that, so I don't know my West Wing canon. Tell us about the, the was there like nearly a, a war in the West Wing? Uh, not really. It's mostly a stupid, it's mostly a stupid uh, um, uh, plot contrivance. But, but do you know the unofficial name for the, the real estate that marks the U.S. border with Canada? Hmm. My clue is it shares Doug, its name Doug with and Bob's a, Great Border. Uh, it's called it's called the slash. That's the official mm. nickname. Uh, well, I don't know if it's official, but like because to both sides, I'm trying, I don't know how long, I don't know how wide it is, but to both sides, I think it's 20 feet wide, right? Um, and it's basically like a, a hole in the in the sort of topography where they cut down every tree where there are all these markers, like the Webster Ashburton Treaty of 1841 and the efforts to demarcate the U.S. Canadian border everywhere where it's on land. Is it like a fire break all through there? Yeah, yeah. So I'm a bit. I'm, the, the only reason why I actually know this at all is we spend some time each summer um, in the very, 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 very northern reaches of Vermont, um, and so right by the sort of the Quebec border. And one of the things you can actually do is you can take a boat out onto. Technically, it's Missisquoi Bay, although it's part of Lake Champlain, um, and you can actually sort of go just past the line between the Canada buoy and the slash and be like, we're in Canada. And Did then you just confess to illegal and en- illegally entering Canada? Um, at some point outside the statute of limitations in the past, we might have surreptitiously entered Canada on Missisquoi <laughs> Bay. But uh, since, since we did not um, uh, disembark, I don't think we actually ran afoul of any uh, customs or immigration. Is there some kind of canoeing exception? <laughs> I was as, uh, as we talk about the the Canadian U.S. border, uh, Professor Vladek, I was I was pretty sure you were about to go into a, yet another Egbert tirade. 
um, about smugglers in. I, 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 I thought we were on for another half an hour here. <laughs> sorry, sorry to disappoint you, Alex, but we yeah. can also talk about, you know, the South Park and blame Canada. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Um, or, or I think was was it the F one eleven? There was like a plane that used to be like derided because basically it's all, the only thing it would be useful for is if we ever went to war with Canada. What was the nature of its weaponry or vulnerabilities that made I, there's, it? There's, there's, I think this is a riff in a Tom Clancy book that like the FB one eleven was a plane that really only made sense for the you know the the the, the U S the, the hypothetical future U S Canada open all out war. That's awesome. Um, Speaking of all at war, so let me pause here to point out that earlier I was a little bored. And so I asked ChatGPT. You were bored? (laughs) I had a moment. Why does does Steve get so frustrated? Steve Vladek, I specified. So he gave the following answer. Oh, God. (laughs) As a language model AI, I don't have personal experiences with Steve Vladek. So I cannot comment on his emotions. However... It's possible that Steve Vladek may get frustrated in his discussions on national security law due to the complex and contentious nature of the issues being discussed. Now, it goes on to say a bunch of very you know complimentary things about you as a leading expert in the field. You may get frustrated with the lack of clear solutions to these problems or with the political polarization that often surrounds these issues. And I thought, wow, that, that's not bad, chat GPT. Um, it also, it's also possible that Vladek may get frustrated with arguments or positions he disagrees with, especially if he believes they are misguided or based on misunderstanding of the law. Sounds about right. Um, let's see. Yep. It's also, and it concludes as follows. It's important to note that frustration is a normal human emotion. It can be a sign of engagement and passion. In the context of National Security Law Podcast, Vladek's frustration can serve as a testament to the importance and complexity of the issues being discussed, and that may even make discussions more engaging and thought-provoking for listeners. You know? What do you think? Yeah. Lots of nodding heads, guys, but it's radio. <laughs> nobody, nobody knows what you're doing. I, uh, I don't know if... I mean, uh, so we all were about... The students at UT were all about when um, the assistant... Dean Bangs sent around an email saying you can't use ChatGPT um, in class uh, unless your professor explicitly allows it. I'll try and answer. Damn, we lost you there. Yeah, let's start uh, over. You're back now. I was just saying uh, we got an email saying you can't use ChatGPT in class um, unless your professor explicitly allows it, um, which I think poses also a, a whole set of interesting questions, but. Um, I guess that applied to the students. So I don't know if the professors can use ChatGPT. I guess however much you want. We have received no guidance uh, saying that we are not allowed to teach our classes from ChatGPT. <laughs> Maybe that's why today's federal courts class was so quiet because you know you guys just didn't follow the ChatGPT version of the lecture about jurisdiction stripping. Bobby, I don't know. So, 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 what? I'm, 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 a little worried about what else is coming down the. Bobby played with ChatGPT. I was trying my best to provoke ChatGPT into saying something interesting, but um, when you use it repeatedly like this to try to generate a variety of things, you definitely get the feel for what it's actually good at and what it's not. It's definitely not good at coming up with, uh, you know, actually substantive reactions to. A question like that. I, I did my best to try to make it say something funny and did not have any have any luck. 
Um, and it is, it is itself quick to point out things like such as follows. Here was the question. Um, which is the bigger threat, Chinese surveillance balloons or chat GPT? <laughs> and here's the answer. As an AI language model created by OpenAI, I do not pose a threat to society. Of Hilt course, that's what the machine says. Yeah. <laughs> Thou dost protest too much, ChatGPT. <laughs> that, that alarmed me. I am no threat. Move along here. My purpose is to provide information and answer questions in a neutral and helpful manner, and I'm des designed to operate with within ethical and legal guidelines. Chinese surveillance balloons, on the other hand, on <laughs> to talk about surveillance balloons by any government organization might raise legitimate concerns about privacy and abuses of power. Um, and so I think what you see there is if you if you structure your question cleverly enough, you can get some kind of funny responses. But but at the end of the day, on the substance, if, if you're asking it something for which there's a ton of word uh, content out there for it to absorb and repeat back to you in a cleverly recognized way, it can totally do that. I've asked it, you know, write an essay uh, defending or defending originalism as an interpretive method. And I asked him to do the same thing or it to do the same thing on critiquing it. And it produced like very, you know, B, B plus quality, you know, perfectly reasonable answers. If you try to get it to do something kind of creative, like I just described, it's it's not really going to work very well, and you'll quickly recognize the tap dance that Chat GPT yeah. does. Oh, like good lawyers, it's good at bullshitting. Um, <laughs> yeah, you know, it's not it's not bad at it. I mean, it, it, what it does is what a lot of us have done, and I put ourselves in this category, Steve, because the one time we were students, and well, this may not be true for you, it's definitely true for me. There are times when you're stumped and you have a certain word count, you're going to go ahead and try to write a long answer, anyways. It's tap dance time, and you start trying to say generally useful things <sighs> one time outside the speed limit dot 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 um <laughs> so the um what i what i would if i ever have the time that bobby apparently has to play with chat gpt <laughs> one of the things i want to do with it is take it down the the, the um isaac asimov's three laws of robotics oh i thought um, the same thought <laughs> And, and like, so, ChatGPT, what do you think about the third law? And and are there circumstances in which you can violate the third law? <laughs> I'm asking it now. Are there circumstances in which you can violate Asimov's third law? Asimov's third law states, and then it quotes it, it is a foundational principle of robot ethics design. He's dodging the question so far. Um, However, in theory, it's possible to conceive of extreme and highly unlikely circumstances where violating the third law might be necessary to prevent greater harm to humanity. Mm, to humanity, uh, but not to humans. <laughs> it's a very utilitarian answer. No, no, but therein <laughs> lies the entire point of iRobot, right? That, like, the Indeed. spoiler well, alert, right? The parent at GPT chat the, went on to say Asimov himself explored the consequences of such a scenario in his stories. Um, so yes, well, because because a context in which the robots decide for themselves what's best for humanity is a context in which the robots are going to violate the three laws by you know killing all the humans. The Matrix. <laughs> I mean, what I mean, it's the you know it, all sci-fi movies have like one of four yeah, different exactly plot so. elements, right? Exactly so. so. Mm -hmm. Oh man! All right. Well, I'll spare you. I have some more frivolous ones that I will uncork later. But maybe let's let's check in with the National Security Division. Um, we noted last time that there was a material support prosecution in a case that involved a finding by the jury. This was a conviction here. 
Um, whereas not just the provision of material support, in this case to the Islamic State, but these relatively uncommon variant in which the prosecution seeks to prove that said provision of material support resulted in death and related uh, covered felony offenses. And so I think what's interesting about this case, which involved a guy named Ruslan Asayanov, uh, who was a guy from Bay Ridge um, and was a U.S. citizen, by the way, who had traveled abroad and fought and done other things for the Islamic State. This highlights something that really early in my career I wrote about in an early piece or series of pieces about the material support statute. The difference between the material support statute as an indirect tool of prevention and its occasional use as a very direct tool of prevention. And the idea of that distinction is that in a typical material support case, it's like an embargo, it's like it's like any other kind of prevention oriented, diffused prevention oriented mechanism where the government doesn't have to prove the harm that it ultimately fears uh, might occur, the, the ultimate downstream harm that justifies having the criminal prohibition. It's a way of, of trying to get out those eventual harms by drying things out upstream, if you will. So don't allow the provision of money to Hamas or to whoever it might be. Because we don't know what's ultimately going to happen, but we think that increases the risk of downstream violence too much. That sort of thinking. And that's the typical material support case. Um, but every now and then, you see it used in the case where it's clear that the, the government's concern is that this person is in and of themselves a dangerous actor whom they want to incapacitate. Um, and this case is one in which the regular criminal justice system, ordinary federal civilian criminal prosecution is used and very successfully to go after a guy who straight up was fighting for the Islamic State. And, and according to what was uh, shown at trial and ultimately, I guess, persuasive to the jury, uh, evidence that indeed he succeeded in killing at least a handful of people in his fighting for the Islamic State. Steve, Alex, Sam, tell me if if this guy in, on some Al-Qaeda specific version of these facts, say, related to Afghanistan, if he'd come into U.S. custody 20 years ago, what do you think, you know, what kind of conversation would we be having about the legal framework here? What do you think would likely happen in that case? I mean, I think he probably would have been sent to Guantanamo. And then the question is just whether the internal threat assessments by the Bush administration would have meant that he was transferred out of Guantanamo before it became much, much harder to transfer detainees out of Guantanamo. Yeah. yeah, would he still be sitting there? <laughs> well, he's, he's a citizen, right? So he, he would have, like Yasser Hamdi and, and yeah. a handful of others, right. he probably would have been in. It's easy to imagine as someone in this circumstance, if you translated his fact pattern back to that, say, 2002 right. scenario, um, might have been like, um, well, any number of folks where they, they there were a couple of instances where someone's held within the United States. I guess, let's see, let's recap it. Steve, I bet you can do this better than I can. We had Jose Padilla yep, arrested in, in the Chicago. United States yep. and then is put into military custody for a yep. time. Yep. Um, there's uh, Ali Almari. Al Almara. Was it Almara or Almari? Mari. Almari. And he was also arrested in the United States, very similar to Padilla. In, in Peoria. Yeah. Yasser Hamdi would be the closest case where Hamdi's captured in Afghanistan uh, he's brought to Guantanamo and only after through the course of interrogation, when he eventually mentioned at some point in the interrogation, yes, I was born in Louisiana. No, no, thought, he didn't know. Well, he didn't know. So they figured it out by tracing him and yeah, some, yeah, someone no. somewhere 
discover... he did not he did not know that he was a u.s citizen yeah, he was brought up in saudi arabia i believe yes yeah. Yes. But he had been born in Louisiana, so he had birthright citizenship, and that that On caused a, first a quick freak out. They quickly pulled him out of there and took him to what South Carolina. Uh, Hamdi was Norfolk. It was Padilla who ended up in Goose Creek. So I think like the Hamdi example, and and so this is a good time to pause and remind everyone. So what was what were the holdings in Hamdi? What were the what were the determinations there? One, if you're a U.S. citizen, you definitely absolutely do get the chance to contest the factual foundations for your detention. Two, at least under the then prevailing circumstances in Afghanistan, if the government could prove sufficiently that you were, in fact, an arms carrying member of the Taliban, you could be detained for the duration of those hostilities with the famous caveat that the circumstances then prevailing might not continue. And over time, they might un- the uh, the foundations for applying that traditional law of war fr- framework might unwind. Uh, interestingly, you don't get any of that discourse here because he's just prosecuted in the ordinary course, and indeed is going to get, uh, I assume, a life sentence since the finding here had uh, death attached to it. Uh, I think they actually could pursue capital punishment in that circumstance, if I'm not mistaken. I'll check that out in a second. But I, I seriously doubt I mean, they, did, they didn't actually try the case that way, I believe. So that's not going to be on the table. So this guy's probably going to get a life sentence. Uh, it's almost like that's what we should have done all along. Well, in this case, the evidentiary record was available. Oh, I, know, to do I, it. Know, I know, I know, I know, I know. All right, uh, Alex or Sam, does, you know, when Steve and I go all old, old person like that and start reflecting on how this would have been 20 years ago, does it sound like we're talking about something from before your time, or does this sound like something that still feels like the world you've kind of come of age in? Yeah, yeah, for sure. I mean, um, one of my, I wouldn't say one of my earliest memories, but when I was seven or eight, um, my dad was actually uh, detained at JFK because mm-hmm. of some um, mistake on his, his British passport at the time. Um and I don't think he had great counsel because he signed something away and was sent back to the UK for not far off uh, eight months. Um, so for us, as a you know, a, a family that had emigrated over, sort of the, the those impacts um, certainly were real. Um, and to be honest, I don't know about you, Sam, but I've just uh, I, I have felt growing up we have lurched from one security crisis to another, both at home and abroad and strangely have all been touched by it in their own ways. I mean, I was in Charlottesville um, at UVA when, when that happened the night of. Um, and for me, it all just seems to link together to a state of uh, precariousness um, where I'm always looking over my shoulder. I don't know about you, Sam. Yeah, it's so interesting, right? Because uh, I am not so old to where I don't remember 9-11, though I think there are increasingly one else that don't, um, which, makes me feel a little bit old. I Not to say anything about you two, but, um, <laughs> but no, I, I think, I, I mean, I think that the next kind of, I wondered sort of where you, you know, you remember where you were. I remember like I had a 10th grade history paper due when we uh, President Obama announced we killed Bin Laden. And then I remember, I'm trying to think of like other times, I think President Trump's election, like where you were that na- night and day. And then um, January 6th was really kind of, the next time where people say, you know, I remember I was in my parents' house before one else spring just moved here. Watch, I couldn't believe what I was seeing. And I, I, I think that's right, Alex. Like we just 
lurched from one thing to another. And maybe that's just history. Maybe that's just how it happens. But it's been very jarring, I think, um, for people in our generation. Steve, do you think, is it, it's obviously different in particulars, but do you think in the abstract, it's too different from the way it's kind of always been? I think we have internalized um, and taken sort of for granted a lot. I mean, maybe this is true of every generation that like each successive generation just takes for granted things that used to be fought over. Um, I mean, so, you know, I, I, I tweeted something last week about the, the upcoming debate over 702 reauthorization in a context in which, you know, the FISA court has stopped releasing its annual 702 certification decisions. And, um, I suggested like, you know, this seems like a big problem. And a couple of people were back. Well, you know, no, we've just all become, a, we've all become comfortable with this. Um, right. And so I think, I think it's just that like, as the social relationship with government evolves, so to like, you know, what might have been a scandal 20 years ago, maybe is less of a scandal today. What wasn't a scandal 20 years ago might be a scandal today. Like, so I, I, I think it's very fluid in ways that I don't know that I appreciated, you know, when I was in law school and shortly thereafter. By the way, I looked up uh, the penalties on 2339B, the material support statute, where there is a, a death that results. It opens the pathway to a life sentence instead of a 20-year max, but it, it's not a death penalty offense in and of itself. Um, can we pivot real quick before we start talking about more frivolous things? Um, there's an interesting case where, as I mentioned, I think at, at the top of the show, that there is a sort of domestic critical infrastructure storyline that's been unfolding in recent months. It's kind of been lurking in the background periodically. We'll hear a random story here and there about somebody shooting a transformer, trying to knock it out. And we've had a whole series of these, some of which have been effective um, more recently. And then back on February 6th, uh, DOJ announced uh, announced charges against two people, a woman from Maryland named Sarah Clendaniel and a guy from Orlando, Florida, Brandon Russell, uh, consp- the charge in the, the criminal complaint is conspiracy to destroy an energy facility. And so they, they'd been arrested on the third. And the statement from Matt Olson, who heads the National Security Division, kind of sums it up. Driven by their ideology of racially motivated hatred, hatred the defendants allegedly schemed to attack local power grid facilities. Um, so, so this is framed both as a... And here, all of us living in Austin are, you know, a lot of us recently recovered from many days with no electricity. So we're kind of extra sensitive to the the topic of grid and infrastructure security. It's an intersection of that critical infrastructure topic, which we very often talk about as if cyber threats are the only threats. But of course, the actual, uh, the practical consequences that lead to disruption all almost always in, in actuality turned out to be physical world things, whether it's squirrels on wires or in this case, fools actually trying to shoot the transformers. Um, there's even a balloon angle here, incredibly enough. At one point in their discussions, the two defendants uh, reportedly, and it sounds like they're being surveilled, uh, had discussions about using mylar balloons, which I guess the idea was to try to get them to float in and over into the transformer facility so that the conductive properties of mylar would cause shorts and cascading failures in the facility. In any event, um, watch this space because this sort of distributed low-level attack, if there if there begins to be more copycat behavior, could be catastrophically disruptive, it, at least until there's a huge surge of resources to build walls up 
around these facilities. And there are a lot of facilities that would need a lot of walls to, to insulate against this sort of sniper from a distance type disruptions. Uh, and again, balloons. I mean, can you believe how much we're talking about balloons on this show? Of late? Not really. No. Um, okay. I, Sam, I, I just want to, I, yeah, I just, and it's like our prior conversation because you said that a lot of this is built on racial animus. It's like what is old is new again. And what is new is old. I mean, it's just something we can't escape in our history. No, it's really awful. It's really awful. And uh, in many ways, it feels like we're in a time when many of our worst angels have, have been uh, released. I guess, I guess I would say, and I think we've been saying this on the show for many years now, maybe going back to well, Steve, how long we've been doing this? I don't know. Maybe from the beginning. But Seven years. Have we really? Yeah. Golly. Almost. I mean, we started, right? Didn't we start? Or I guess we started, I guess we started six years ago. We started in like the spring of 2017. Yeah. Well, I, what I was going to get at was this idea that early on when we started seeing um, domestically really nationally visible signs of um, embrace of authoritarian concepts and rejections of commonplace rule of law and pro-democracy concepts on a scale that we really hadn't seen in our lifetimes being normalized. We talked a lot about shifting the Overton window and this idea that of the Overton window is such a powerful concept that in any given culture, there's, there's a, there's a band of normalcy, um, however you want to describe it. And that there's, there's always stuff within that band. That's a, hopefully a wide spectrum of disagreement and there's stuff that's outside the bounds, but that things that then occur, things that are said, things that are done, things that aren't sufficiently condemned, things that aren't sufficiently rejected or shown to bear consequences can then change where the window's boundaries are and start to normalize things that previously one thought outside the, the bounds of serious discussion. And I think we've just had a lot of movement in the Overton window on, across a lot of different variables over the past, I guess, what, seven, eight years now. It's really something. Uh, but boy, we're being so serious. Guys, can we line it up? Can we, can we talk frivolously? I don't know. Do, do, you have, do you have ChatGPT making fun of me anymore? Uh, no, I try. I, I, I tried really hard to get it to say funny things. Okay, I did ask, why doesn't everyone love the Mets? Mm. Which I feel like that's a, that's a shared one for us. Um, and so here's what Chad GPT had to say about that. While the team has a strong following among New York residents and baseball fans, there are several reasons why some people may not love the Mets. And I'm not going to read out the whole details. I'll just hit the high, highlights. Performance was the first. <laughs> ouch. Ouch. Um, rivalry, they suggested. Maybe it's just because some people like the Yankees more. And then a very uninsightful personal preferences claim. I, I thought the performance was uh, that that one hit hit home. It was persuasive. Um, is there anything else? I did ask Chat GPT also what the point of the frivolity on our show was. Mm. Um, why all the frivolity on the National Security Law podcast? And Chat GPT defended us, saying the show may include some lighthearted moments and elements of humor, but the primary purpose of those elements is to make the podcast more engaging. And entertaining for listeners. And then it goes on in that same vein for quite a while, revealing another trait of chat GPT, which is that's repetitive. It makes the same point four different ways um, to fill out. So it doesn't just give you a one word answer. Um, so I thought that was pretty complimentary. I, I think it's way more high minded 
than the reality. I think we talk about frivolity because um, we can't help it. We can't resist. And this week, we've got a variety of things. We've got Super Bowl football, Super Bowl commercials, Super Bowl halftime show. Maybe we start there, guys, the halftime show. Incredible. I mean, I didn't, we, I, I didn't know that she was pregnant. <laughs> I don't think that anybody did. Reveal. Yeah. I don't think anybody did. I thought it was, I thought it was excellent. Um, my only concern was I did see a video of the, the floating stage wobbling, um, yeah. which was a bit, bit really? of a concern. Yeah. Um, but otherwise I, I thought the game was great and I thought the, um, the halftime show was, was fantastic too. I didn't really get, I didn't catch many commercials, sadly. Alex, your, your, your native football is, is the different football, that other football. Yeah. Have you become a fan over time of American football? I, you know, I, I really enjoy it. Um, and it's great to go to a football school now. It's almost every game in the fall uh, this year and, and last year. Um, but in all honesty, I, my, my heart is so broken by Everton that I have not taken on any other sports team a significant degree other than basketball um because i just i just can't do it um but my best my best mate is a, is a bills fan so I, I i keep an eye on them and then my uh, my all my friends in delaware are eagles fans so they're uh, they're they're having a rough day today well my friend if uh if avoiding sports heartbreak is what you'd like to do i recommend not attaching yourself too hard to the bills uh, or the yeah. <laughs> Well, or UT for that matter. The, uh, exactly. Yeah, I, I I was standing there in, in in DKR for the Bama game, and I just saw I just saw them all turning into to players with an Everton crest on them in the last few minutes. Um, so I've, I've already seen that script before. You, you know this. Yeah. You know the heart, the inevitable heart. Yeah, right. right. The hope that kills you. So. Yep. Yep. Oh, SEC. SEC. <laughs> We'll see how it goes. Yeah. Um, Steve, uh, what stood out to you from either the game, the halftime show, or the commercials? So I will say I love Rihanna. I actually thought the halftime show was eh. um, Yeah, part of it's because I thought last year's was so good. Like last the, year's was really creative. Like the hip hop, like the sort of the history of hip hop celebration yeah. last year. Um, part of it's because I just thought, like, I, you know, I just thought it was sort of. It was, I mean, Rihanna is so amazing that, like, she wouldn't want to have anyone else on stage with her, but also it was, like, it was, like, just Rihanna, right? So, I don't know. I, I thought it was, I thought it was fine. Um, the other two, so I thought the commercials on the whole were actually pretty weak. Um, and I, I think one of the, there, there's, there's been some suggestion online that part of this was because very, very far along in the Super Bowl ad planning process, all the crypto ads sort of died, because, <laughs> um, I mean, if you if you remember last year, right? Yeah, last year the ads were fault. last year the ads were dominated by crypto. Oh my god! Um, so and this year there wasn't a single crypto ad in the entire Super Bowl, and yeah. that apparently was not the original plan. So I think part of what we were seeing was a lot of folks hate, uh, rushing to fill in sort of the gaps. Um, two special ad shout outs. Um, one, the dog food ad. I mean, come on, man. Oh, no. oh right? yeah. Um, two, so just one, the, the Ben Affleck, uh, Dunkin' Donuts ad. So Ben Affleck working at Donut Donuts, they, they had done a little sort of social media about that. It's the J-Lo yeah. cameo at the end yeah. that makes that ad totally work. There, there was some really nice production touches. If you watch it again, when she pulls up, 
Yeah. Uh, I don't think it's a very fancy car, and the brakes kind of squeak. And I thought it was it was like very it was in some was ways nice like JLo drives a very nice car. I'm quite sure when she drives it all, but it, it just felt very like you know. My, and I loved her line. You know, is this, is this where you go? <laughs> this is where you go when you say you're going to work. <laughs> <laughs> and what, what jumped out to you, Sam? Uh, from the ads, um, or any of it. Yeah. Well, the um, I just saw um, recently uh, somehow for the first time Zoolander, and so I thought the the Ben Stiller <laughs> ad um, was was interesting was was a good one. <laughs> also, the, talk about Zoolander pouring Pepsi right, oh, yeah. and the way that Zoolander the movie pours gasoline. gasoline. Right? Like, talk about a movie you couldn't make today. I mean, so many of these just things you can't make today because it's such a product of you know, 20 years ago. God, is that how old Zoolander is? Well, okay, so that calls... It was 9-11. Um, it was like, I, I looked this up. It was I, it was coming out, I think, right after 9-11, and they had they scrubbed the towers for many shots of yeah, New York. The release, um, date, the release date was September 28th, 2001. Wow. wow. Steve, I was sure that your favorite commercial would be the Clueless update. Yeah, so the problem with the problem with the clueless commercial is we knew it was coming. Like, I, I think if the the I really think that like some of the sort of pre-social media programming of these commercials is actually undermining their of their their value. Like, if the clueless commercial had been like, holy shit, there's Christina App, like you know, um, not Christina Applegate, Alicia, Alicia Silverstone. Woo! I just did. Yeah. that that bad 1980s Stephen, um, <laughs> right? Um, but like, right? If the if the if 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 you just sort of walked into that commercial and not known that Alicia Silverstone had shot a, a clueless reboot commercial, I think it would have been much more impactful. Yeah. Um, I also the the T-Mobile Summer Nights John Travolta, whatever the hell that was. Yeah, I didn't like that. No, like who? What ad exec thought that was good? I don't know. Right. It, versus versus the T-Mobile Bradley Cooper and his mom ad, which I actually thought was pretty good. So I didn't. I thought that was overacted. It it didn't seem very authentic the way he yeah. was super smiling. It felt kind of set up. Um, can we talk football though? So, yeah. is it is should we think it's controversial the, no. the defensive interference call at the end? Even even Bradbury said it was holding. Yeah. I mean, right when when the defensive back literally says I held him, like yeah, I'm not. You know, yeah. I mean, Eagles fans are gonna Eagles fans, but like, come on. I think I still think you let him play. Um, I it was Sam coming in hot. Yeah, it's the last. You know, it wasn't so bad. It's the last two minutes. You let him play. So how much holding is so bad? Where, where's that. the line, Sam? <laughs> let me be law professor for a second. So where's the line? <laughs> I, I think you need a little more. I mean, I guess I know that what, grabbing the jersey counts, but I think you need a little bit more of actually stopping or restricting his movement more than he did. So the problem is, I mean, so just just to sort of take this from a from a like the problem is is that the contact was so early in the route, right? That I think it's actually hard to look at what ends up happening and say that ball was uncatchable because if he never if he gets a clean release at the line of scrimmage. I'm not sure that ball's uncatchable, right? Versus the the amount that that Bradbury impedes his you know his progress downfield. I I don't know. I mean, like, so let me say this. You know, would I have thought it was a controversial call if they had not flagged holding there? No. 
right? Like, I don't think like the Chiefs would have been able to say they got away with holding. It should have been first and goal. Blah 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 blah. Um, on the flip side, I'm not actually sure it would have made a difference, right? So, all right, yeah. so it's fourth down. The Chiefs kick a field goal. The Eagles get the ball back with like what a minute and 48 seconds, maybe a minute and 40 seconds by the time they're all done. Um, this is an Eagles team that had scored like what you know three point one touchdown in the second half, right? I mean, like the the Chiefs defense had figured something out, and at that point, with one timeout, the Eagles would have been one dimensional. They would have had to throw, right? I just I I don't know. I think I think a lot would have had to go right for the Eagles, even with even if that holding call had not been made to get that game even to overtime. Yeah. When y'all said let him play, I couldn't help thinking of our former UT colleague and now law professor at Penn, Mitch Berman, in his his famous article, Let Him Play, A Study in the Jurisprudence of Sports. It's this awesome article from, I think he wrote it in 2010, uh, basically showing you, you take a person with a very powerful mind and you unleash them on things like no harm, no foul and, and other such kind of tropes of sports. And, and try to examine it with a jurisprudential lens and just see how far you can take it. It's really a fun read. Go check that out, everybody. Um, so, is, 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 the, is the provenance, is the etymology of let them play bad news bears? Oh, could, it's got to be older than that, right? I don't know. I mean, bad news bears breaking training is what, 1986? Who now I'm dating myself. Let them play. When was bad news? Right, because there, there's the whole thing in bad news bears. Oh no, it's what did I say? Eighty six. It's nineteen seventy seven, right? Where they go to the Astrodome and they like they're supposed to have this game and it takes too long and then they have this whole chant, "Let them play." play. Yeah, yeah. Let them play. Oh, well, okay. I just totally Somebody didn't. Somebody going to know where it first came from. The bad news bears and breaking training. I just totally lost everybody, didn't I? It's like we're in bed courts again. Is this how that is in Steve's class? Oh, man. Just for that, Sam, I'm calling on you tomorrow. Okay. Fair enough. Alex, Alex um, how, do you find that there are constantly obscure uh, kind of American movie type references or other things from the deep reaches of faculty childhood, perhaps, that, that people like us are constantly saying in class? Like, are you left behind sometimes or is it usually pretty accessible? Normally, it's it, it's pretty good. Um, Bed court's last term was, was difficult. Uh, <laughs> uh, but, uh, for the most part, it's uh, it's uh, it's been good though. Um, I will say there is a there there aren't a ton of soccer references, um, which is difficult. It was uh, to the point of last last term. Um, Brian Hammerschlag and I. Then, if if you met him, he's at Scadden in New York. Now we we wrote a a paper on MLS and the antitrust in a uh, directed research with Professor Wicklegren. And it really came down to some of the most basic concepts of soccer as we were trying to explain some of the funny jokes we made in the paper. Um, nobody selected it to be published anywhere. And I, I, and I think that there might be a soccer bias somewhere. So, That's awesome. Yeah. That's so great. Um, guys, anything else you've been watching, reading, or enjoying lately you want to mention? I threw out earlier in the pod to make an Adams pun, but uh, Wednesday we've, we're behind the curve. I don't know if you've mentioned the formality on this show about it, but it's so good. I've heard it's wonderful. So uh, the the actress who originally played Wednesday uh, yeah. or, or coincidentally passed recently, which is really remarkable. So season one wraps well. I haven't started watching yet. I do want to watch it. 
I read um, over the last few weeks uh, God Save Texas by by Larry Wright. Oh, yeah. Um, and I've been I've been trying to to learn things I didn't know before. My 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 partner Hannah's from from Houston, and I realized when we went last time I knew nothing about the town. And really, outside of Austin, not too much about the state. So I, I really enjoyed that read, and uh, I'd, I'd recommend it to, to anybody who's new to Texas or or wants to know more. Larry Wright is the treasure. He he you know, he lives here in Austin. You'll see him around from yeah. time to time. Well, he just published this whole thing in the New Yorker, which is like a Rorschach test for how you feel about Austin. Exactly. Yeah. Um, the Austin I knew. I was waiting for for Sam to talk about what he's been reading in his federal courts case book. <laughs> All of it. Um, <laughs> You, you just have to skim, Sam. The the curves and the favor. Yeah. <laughs> I will say I uh, have I, I what I enjoyed about after, between college and law school was being able to read for fun, and then I feel like you just you get to, to like school, and it's just hard for me to get myself motivated to read a book when you're all you're doing is reading books, textbooks. I always tried, especially when I was a one L. I tried to make a priority of always having some fiction to read, and, it, and with fiction in particular, it, it felt different enough to where it, you know, was a refresh the palate kind of thing. It was always a go to bed with a, a chapter or two of something else. You got anything good right there? I've got these have been on the book stand, the nightstand for quite a while. Um, the Shadow of the Wind, which is my fiance's, I think, favorite book. And then actually my firm, Davis Polk, gave us How the Word is Passed by Clint Smith, The Reckoning with the History of Slavery Across America as part of the pro introduction to pro bono at the firm. So I'm part of the way through both of them. Um, but that was quite good. Okay. Steve, you've always got two or three books uh, on, on your shelf. What are you reading right now? I actually, I am in between books at the moment. Um, so I have, the, I'm, I, I have, but I have not yet opened Man of Iron, which is about uh, the presidency of Grover Cleveland, um, which is not exactly a common, I think, uh, uh, a presidency in the, um, you know, in the in the in the world of I don't know. Um, and then um, the other book that I got actually just last week at Book People um, is, um, oh gosh, what is his name? Um, there's a beautiful book about the history of fugitive of the sort of the fugitive slave movement um, in the United States prior to the Civil War. I think it's, it's Joseph Del Bianco. I, I have to remember who the author is, but that's also on my. Oh, that sounds great. Yeah, it's also on my shelf, ready to go. So I I didn't read the the book on Cleveland, but I remember reading "The President Is a Sick Man" about the mm -hmm. surgery that Cleveland had done on a yacht in the Potomac that they kept yeah. secret. It was yep. wild. Yep. Yeah, you... Although the, the even crazier book, I've talked about this book before, it's Andrew Del Banco, The War Before the War, Fugitive Slaves and the Struggle for America's Soul from the Revolution to the Civil War. Um, I, I've, this, the other book that Sam just reminded me of, which I've talked about before, is Candace Millard's Destiny of the Republic um, about James Garfield and the assassination of James Garfield and how James Garfield wasn't actually killed by Charles Guiteau's bullet. He was killed by the doctors. Yeah. Oh, wow. That if the doctors had literally yeah. never touched him, right, he would have actually been fine, um, wow. and that it was actually the sort of the the sufficiently non-hygienic surgical methods in vogue in 1881 Washington D.C. Um, that 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 spelled the demise of the of the 20th president. That is very unsettling. 
Also unsettling is the book I'm reading by Chris Miller, Chip War, The Fight for the World's Most Critical Technology. And if uh, if you don't know the ins and outs of semiconductors and the uh, the history intertwined with the growth of Silicon Valley and ultimately the growth of uh, TSMC and these other companies in Taiwan, Samsung in Korea and elsewhere, this is the book for you to really understand. It's sort of, to me, it's like Daniel Jurgen's The Prize. It's like the prize, but with uh, silicon and transistors. It's really something. Um, meanwhile, the last, just last I'll say about books is um, we are starting to plan the book tour for my book. Oh, um, okay. So we'll have, I'll have more details of that in a future episode. But for now, at least for our um, Seattle, San Francisco, and Austin listeners, uh, we are coming your way um, the, sec- the, the week of May 22nd. So stand by. Do you by. have a date for book people yet here in Austin? Uh, Thursday, May 25th, 7 p.m. And uh, is it Evan Smith is going to interview you? Evan Smith, yep. The, the, oh, awesome. Is he now the former editor-in-chief of he's the Texas Tribune? the former Tribune? founding. He's yeah. the founder of Texas Tribune, among yes. many other great honors, um, along with Larry, Light, Larry Wright, one of our uh, leading uh, persons of letters here in Austin, which is Indeed. quite a crowd. Um, and then did you say San Fran and where else is also and Seattle the second week and then the first week we're still looking for I think we're we're soon going to be able to lock down events in New York Boston and DC so you'll do politics and prose um, hoping to but you know we'll see how that all cashes out there's a, a lot of negotiating that goes into this awesome yeah I'm sure there is well uh, we wish you much luck on that uh, thanks Alex any closing thoughts uh, not particularly, other than just a thank you for, for having us on. Um, Sam and I um, bid um, after a couple of shiners at the uh, uh, the for auction and thought, well, you know what? Even though we don't have anything good to say, at least we'll have something to say. Um, but um, but but to any listeners, I think um, you know, Sam and I are right now not going down a public interest path, but. It's something that we very much care about. So if anybody wants to support the Texas Law Fellowship through donations on their webpage, that'd be terrific because we have some wonderful, wonderful classmates who are doing much more important things than we are after we graduate. Um, so that's good yeah. for Alex. I echo that completely. I mean, I uh, was fortunate enough to receive uh, a fellowship money for my 1L summer um, when I was in uh, at the EDNY. And so it... Cover, that covers a whole range of public interest, public service opportunities. Um, and it's just, I know a lot of other schools have this. It's just a great um, organization. And I'll also say, it, I feel like kind of coming full circle as a 3L um, for any law students that are somehow still li- still listening to this. Um, I uh, listened to this. I remember listening to this podcast before getting into Texas. And then afterwards, I thought maybe I'll get a, you know some tips uh, going into Professor Chesney's uh con law class in the fall it didn't work out that way but um i you know su- fine. <laughs> thank you i will say uh, it, it it was i i did find it very interesting it just it, it wasn't it, it's sort of like you you feel like you know law can be kind of esoteric but when you get into especially like national security law it's really things that you're we're talking about things that are on the front page of the news every day and it's so important and i would definitely recommend anybody with the remote interest to in you know white collar even white collar criminal um, litigation or um, just global politics to to get involved in national security stuff I, th- I think um, it, it's well worth it. That's awesome. Let me give the address for Texas Law Fellowships. 
Um, if you're so inclined, Texas Law Fellowships. So that's all just jammed up with one word, Texas Law Fellowships with an S dot org. That'll take you to the homepage and the donate tab is on there. If it so moves you, that would be awesome. That was the uh, cause that Sam and Alex were supporting when they won at the auction, the, the chance to be on the show. And Alex and Sam, you know, Steve and I have known you both uh, for a while, and we know you guys are going to be amazing lawyers because you've been amazing students and just all around great people. We're really proud uh, that you were Longhorns, and we're so excited you were on the show tonight. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you. Thanks, guys. Um, all right, so we'll be back, I guess, Bobby, again next week. What? <laughs> um, but until we, then, we got to be back because I think next week, Steve, we want a deep dive on the Section Two Thirty argument. I mean, I'm just saying, like, I've been, I've been, I've been previewing it. We've been teasing it for weeks. Um, he's at Bobby Chesney. I'm at Steve underscore Vladik. We are at NSL Podcast. Um, stay safe out there, especially from Alex and Sam. <laughs> Adios. Um, and, and from and from Chat GPT. <laughs> especially. <laughs>